it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. The series has jumped ahead. It's no longer following the book. You're listening to The Evening Glass with Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy. Littleboy, you've been on Springwatch, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I should have uh, pre-booked uh, that in, in in our recording schedule mm. to make sure that we, we, were, we were not doing any uh, one sensational shot recording during the Springwatch period. I can't really get enough of uh, of the show. I, I, I find it mindfulness TV is what I like to call it because it's gentle. This is no word of lie, no hint of irony. Or whatever. I enjoy watching nature in action, yeah. and uh, it's gentle, of course, because there's not um, there's not a lot of heavy cutting and dramatic oh, yeah, yeah. music or anything like that. So therefore, it, it, you can allow it to wash over you at the pace that the uh, the content, for want of a better word, uh, dictates. And furthermore, that there's something I think about just watching nature in action, where they they've set up their cameras. And, you know, I was watching this eagle, two eagle chicks today. Yeah. And one of the chicks, the slightly older chick, just thought, yeah, this other one's weaker than me, so I'll have him. And over the course of three or four days, he pecks at his brother or sister until they are pretty much outside of the nest, hanging on for dear life. And by that point, the parents sussed out who the stronger of the two is and turns his back on the, the weaker one until they, di- they then die just the next day. And that sort of thing to me is remarkable, just the struggle of nature. Jesus. Because no matter how anxious or upset I might be in my daily life, um, and I can be, uh, sometimes I feel like Blue Jasmine walking to work, uh, the Woody <laughs> Allen picture, because <laughs> I'm just mumbling and murmuring to myself about yeah. what I have to get done or whatever. And I think, my God, I'm losing my mind. And then I watch Springwatch. And I realise what these animals have to go through, daily life and death situations. Um, And I find it just, there's something a bit reassuring about it. There's something cathartic about it. But there's something grotesque about it. And I love all of that. To me, it's it's mindfulness because it's gentle TV. But it captures the drama of real life in a very unceremonious way. I'm pleased, but I don't know how you can look at that and take heart. The casual, brutal indifference of nature, but it's given you a spring in your step. Well done. <laughs> How's that? Oh, man. that's That really is Spring Watch for 2019. Difficult times, interesting times. Yeah, that's it. It's a show that's about it. which I'm, I'm neither cynical nor jaded, and I can't imagine how anybody could be sarcastic about those two presenters, Chris Packham and Michaela Strachan, Oh, they rhyme. Mm. I hadn't really considered that. It does sound lovely in one's mouth, doesn't it? It's as uh, as uh, beautiful as the show itself. Chris Packham and Michaela Strachan. Uh, <laughs> I, I watch it very occasionally, maybe four or five times a year. Well, the, it's only on it's for so... a week or two, Fletch, so you've probably watched its output in that whole year. Surely, sure, surely you watch it four or five times every decade. Is that, is no, that no, because, what you mean? No, because there's Spring Watch and Autumn Watch. Oh, and then there's Autumn Watch. Yeah. I, I and thought a bit there, of Winter Watch as well. Yeah, I thought there was something because I, I, covered, I covered them when they were... I'm struggling to recall, but I think they're in North America and maybe upstate New York mm. watching And it used to be Woodchucks. Bill Oddie and one or two others. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah I barely remember those days. Uh, yeah. 
And I also conflate I... some of the presenters with Garden as well. Charlie, I know Charlie Dimmock and Titch Marsh and Jeff Hamilton, they're not Springwatch, but I feel like there has been a crossover. Don't know about that. Garden's <laughs> world is about, he's all about kind of taming, taming nature. That is not oh, the that's Chris an it... Packham all right. way. Yeah, because I was watching it with Monty Don the other day and they'd, uh, they'd gone to a flower show or other. I enjoyed it in the same way that you've been talking about enjoying Springwatch. Um, it's interesting how uh. mindfulness is the capitalist version of doing nothing. Doing nothing <laughs> has been monetized to become mindfulness, trademark, copyright, Instagram hashtag. But really yeah. it should, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and for me now, it's uh, sitting with a book, which I do very occasionally. I'm trying to get back into read. I'm, re- I'm really making a conscious effort to think about if I'm on my phone for more than three minutes, look at the phone. That could be time you're reading a book. Yeah, and I'd, I'd see it in my hand and think, drop it. Drop it and pick yeah. up the book that you were so enjoying. I'm on the one yeah. about Italian football at the moment. It's a hell of a read. I've got one yeah. borrowed from Wynn about, uh, broadly speaking, about Hillsborough. Because you could have knocked a page back in those three minutes, couldn't you? Yeah. And, and I, I, I yeah. found myself thinking that. Why am I on this freaking Reddit thread reading about oh, the gosh, Game of yeah. Thrones? And that's not just a segue into uh, what we'll be talking about today. But why am I on this freaking Reddit thread looking at Game of Thrones memes and why people dislike this episode or whatever? Yeah. When I could have read in that same amount of time, I could have read a page of, um, of, of what I'm caught all the way in at the moment, which is... Um, uh, Raging Bulls, uh, the, you know the book. So oh yeah, yeah. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. So, yeah, that makes you, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? You've got to think that. So you've got to check yourself at the front door sometimes. You know what I mean? It's exactly that. And increasingly, you know, maybe I'm only doing that twenty percent of the time now. But over the course, of, since it's in my mind, I think that will soon increase to half of the time. And that what well, I I'm really I'm honestly weaning myself off of my phone. Because there's a few things I'm good at. If I'm watching a show or if I'm watching a film, I try not to use my phone at all and occasionally even turn it off. I turn it off over dinner when we're out. Uh, I turn it mm. off at the cinema, of course. But I'm the, what I'm reading at the moment, which is A Season with Verona by Tim Parks, it's so nourishing. I'm basically half learning Italian, mostly swears. And uh, yeah, you've just said, um, I need to reread Down in Dirty Pictures. I need to reread Easy Riders Raging Balls because it's... it's a very quote-worthy work, and I'd like to have it cemented in my mind as we do many of the films we love. At the moment, the only quote I know off the top of my head is Coppola saying of Robert Evans, he's an idiot, 90% of what he thinks is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I love the forthrightness of that. There, there are some great lines in there. Oh, my word. Oh, yeah, I should have... If, we were, if I knew we were going to talk about it, I would have prepped a couple. There, there are some great quotes really really are and just loads of stuff about like the manson family and just absolute mad shit you know what i mean like yeah. just so many anecdotes and just so many extramarital affairs uh yeah there, oh yeah there's so, a bit there's an episode in which steven spielberg shitting his pants knowing that he has to divorce amy irving but mm. also reflecting upon what the fuck it's going to cost him <laughs> yeah, yeah like uh uh, uh, f- uh, fretting away to De Palma in school, so he's <laughs> we need to find we need to find that one again. Uh, I like the reality of that, and you know, it's just it, too often we're asked, too often we're expected to take sides, and I think no, it's just honest and funny to think that this bloke knows he no longer loves his wife, he loves someone yeah. else instead, 
But the reality of that separation will be, as it came to be, the biggest divorce settlement of all time. And having that, at the same time, he's directing The Colour Purple. If I had that in my mind, I don't know if I could leave the bed, let alone the room, let alone the house. And yet he's on set uh, in, in a, an astonishingly fecund period for him. This is a, around the time he's not only directing Twilight Zone and the other pictures I mentioned, but moving into the production of Gremlins and Back to the Future. Yeah. Ah, oh, man alive. Um, that's not what we're here today to talk about, though. Before we, no, be, no. Before we get on, though, um, uh, I hope you have all by now uh, listened to and enjoyed Aiden and I running the numbers on Avengers against Avatar, but that motherfucker pulled a Michael Bolton on me. You remember in Office Space when they, mm. they run the scam from Superman 3, and then they're in the mm-hmm. car and they realise, and uh, Michael says, oh, no, I missed the decimal point. I always forget a mundane <laughs> detail. And Ron Livingston says, this is not a mundane detail, Michael. <laughs> Aiden did that. He put the decimal point in the wrong place. And so, in fact, we need to revise the numbers. He thought that Endgame was about 160 mil behind yeah. Avatar. Yeah. It's not. It's about 67 mil behind Avatar. And so yeah. for the last... And four... it, it, surpassed, <laughs> it surpassed it the other day, didn't it? I, I was listening to the episode this morning, which I hasten to add I thoroughly enjoyed. If uh, you haven't yet listened to it, it is worth a listen, even if the decimal point's in the wrong place. It is interesting to hear uh, what, what Fletch and Aiden have to say about Avatar versus um, uh, Endgame, Avengers Endgame. Um, but it's... I'm sure it surpassed it now. I'm sure it's the biggest film in worldwide no, history, is it not? not yet, not yet. Um, all right, this is hot off the press. I've just checked Wikipedia. So Endgame is at two billion six hundred eighty-two million. Avatar mm. is at two billion seven hundred eighty-seven million. So at the moment, mm. it's just about a hundred off. Aiden's projection mm. revised, of course. Aiden's original projection, well, he thought it was one hundred sixty-seven behind, but his calculations show that it's going to finish sixty-seven behind which is extraordinarily close for comfort. As it is, it's about 98 behind. So mm. I think Aiden will eventually be right, but it was funny that he tried to reassure me, and I wasn't particularly reassured anyway. Then he messaged me today I, I, saying, dude, oh, no. <laughs> I, I'm still going to call I still think it will surpass it myself. Um, but... Uh... Because I'm not... Are there any territories it's not out in yet, you know? Um, I know, I know it's already out in China and um, the States and the UK... Yeah, that's uh, what uh, I was uh, worried about. What what happens when uh, Trump and King Jong Un they sign that deal? Kevin Feige realizes, holy shit, <laughs> and it opens in North Korea, and it's the only film on. I mean, it was bad enough where it was six times an hour at view every hour for its entire first day or possibly first weekend. But when that's the only film available in all of North Korea at the cinema, other than they might just be getting executive decision. Or uh, Daylight, starring <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Oh, man. I don't want to think about it not having yet opened in other territories. We'll get an update from Aidan on that as soon as possible. Will you join with me, Luke? Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, Peter <laughs> Dinklage, Peter... D- That's what we're actually here today to talk about. Weird Al sang, uh, write them faster, write them faster, write them... <laughs> <laughs> it was a summer awards show bad. or something, this footage <laughs> of it on YouTube, and I think they then presented uh, J.R. Martin with a typewriter. Uh, and uh-huh. <laughs> He looked just as pissed off as I would have done uh, if I were in the same same position. Yeah, we're talking about the Thrones, the Game of Thrones, which um, 
Uh, a lot of people have been... Re- so, so, okay, I'll segue into it in this way. Um, I've got two things to say. As Avengers Endgame is on the ascent, you only need to look at a graph called the Rotten Tomatoes graph of um, of Season 8 to see that the, the, the tomato meter was uh, rating Episode 1 of Season 8, Winterfell, at 92%. Episode two, A Night of Seven King, the Seven Kingdoms, was eighty-eight percent. The Long Night was then seventy-four percent. The Last of the Starks, fifty-eight percent. The Bells, forty-eight percent, and the Iron Throne, forty-nine percent. So that is one graph that is on a downward trajectory yeah. in term in terms of the critical uh, rating of the final season of the Thrones. And there was um, a couple of things that we wanted to talk about, wasn't it? It was it was a, a is to what extent is this. Um, is is this an actual fact? You know, to to what extent has the quality of the show slipped? Can you put your finger on when it might have happened, if it ever did? And finally, should people care as much as they seem to? And I think one of the factors here, Fletch, is that if you think about it this way, and other people have said it, it's one of the final shows we will ever have where people watched it together in the same way. Because yeah. it started in what 2010, 2011. Yeah. In a pr- Netflix was not yet streaming, I believe, or if it was, it had just kicked off. And um, as a result of that, you know, it's a bit like I would rank it in the same category as Mad Men and Breaking Bad, where we were watching this as it was coming out. Mm. But of course, because of streaming, people with all three of those shows could suddenly play catch up. And could then catch up on the last five years worth, six years worth of stuff. And in exactly the same way, I remember Breaking Bad, everyone at work, who I would never knew was even watching Breaking Bad, they'd caught up. And then they were talking to me about the finale, as with Mad Men, and as with the Game of Thrones. The amount of people I knew three months ago, just kicking Game of Thrones off, trying to burn their way through it, mm. uh, whenever Sky had it available for streaming... So as a result of that, I, I wonder if part of the hardcore critical fan reaction against it is because it, it was at least a collected, shared experience. I think that I may find that Game of Thrones is a completely different experience if I watch it all at once. Now, <clears throat> my relationship with Game of Thrones started first episode, Sky Atlantic, and I tuned in because I'd seen it trailed and it had Sean Bean in and that was all I cared about. I'd, I think I'd come off of watching Red Riding which had been Mark Addy, Andrew Garfield. Well, did you ever say Red Riding was just fantastic and I wanted more I of Sean Bean. It, no. it's, it's very good. Um, uh, and I watched it from the very beginning. And so for me, Game of Thrones has been a, a slow episodic crawl as television, mm-hmm. at least when it start, when Game of Thrones started, was meant to be. And I don't mm. know whether... Watching it, uh, I don't know whether binge-watching it uh, changes the complexion of the show entirely. Because here's something that I can say, is that the gap between season 7 and season 8 was significant, about a year and a half. Mm. And it was only when it came back, and I got back watching it. So I, that that year and a half generated generated in me enthusiasm, excitement. One of the last images of season 7 is the fucking zombie dragon, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the most astonishing, one of the most astonishing things I've seen on television, executed successfully on television before. I They showed me something that I 
had never seen before, won't ever see again. Um, and it wasn't just the wasn't just the spectacle, but the the circumstances around it inspired in me such pure dread. The sheer fuck offness of uh, the Night King's plot coming to fruition. Yeah, uh, and the stakes the stakes genuinely raising. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it, even more so that there are episodes of the X Files where you realise, holy shit. The whole world's in, you know, but this was yeah. a way of life is on the verge of ex- being extinguished with that movement. Yeah. And it's the design of the Dragon's Roar was particularly good. And those are my boys. My favourites are um, Tormund and Dondarrion, are two of my all-time favourite characters in it. So that episode came out. Then it was an 18-month wait. And in that time, I rewatched bits of that episode, rewatched some of the stuff from the earlier seasons, mainly on YouTube. I've only ever seen each episode once, I think. But then once we got back into season eight, I remembered all of its flaws and how those flaws had been um, smoothed down and forgotten because at times Game of Thrones is quite simply the best television there's been. And when I talk about that, it's you know it becomes frustrating when so many... P- Criticisms of Game of Thrones become frustrating when yeah. you, when you step back and think someone made all that armor, someone beat yeah. all that leather, swordsmen yeah. created those weapons, those locations. Yeah. So much about it is real. So much mm. about it requires armorers, costumers, yeah. greenskeepers. It's fantastic in that regard. What what a tremendous undertaking. And one of the things as well is that just keeping that lot together, there has been what one of the things I liked about Game of Thrones is that it was in some ways a throwback to the 90s television era where characters were recast and there was a little bit of that in Game of Thrones with uh, the Mountain and Dondarrion. Mm. But broadly speaking, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun <laughs> because we yeah, were so I used to that, that with Roseanne for instance. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um, broadly speaking, that's a, a central cast of, it could be as many as 50 characters across those eight seasons, recurring in at least two or three seasons. And they kept them all together. The contract, and I, I bet by season three, by the, by the time it was definitely a success and it looked like they could complete the books, well, complete the books and then keep going, I mm. should imagine agents were renegotiating and each episode just... Uh, keeping the cast on retainer was becoming more and more expensive. But what I'm saying is that between season seven and season eight, I forgot the problems in it. Significantly, I forgot how uh, season five was really boring. Um, yeah, I, I got <laughs> bored in season five, definitely, yeah. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and be more precise with this. Uh, the first three seasons I thought were sensational. I think I liked season four, but there was a time during season four when... When the show began to drag, and the reason was that uh, mainly we were seeing existing likeable characters doing things they'd done before, and then new characters involved in boring situations. And, and I'd forgotten that by the time of season eight, I'd forgotten it had those lulls. I'd forgotten how much, at how tepid I found the entire Daenerys Targaryen plot. And it was only during season eight I remembered, oh yeah, while I was watching the first season and the second and the third, I would begin yawning once it went to wherever she was, whichever chain she was breaking. And I recalled how even dope characters like Peter Dinklage 
and Varys, when they went to find her and spend time with her, they were sucked into her boredom spiral and they became boring as well. I'd forgotten that somehow in, in the intervening time. Did you have a similar experience? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly what was going on in season four. And um, there's some good stuff in there. And they're still using, I think, much of the books, aren't they? So you've got mm. you've got the end of Joffrey. Um, I think that was at the beginning of season four. Um, but, they're, they're, yeah, there did seem to be a lot of... Um, just elongating everything uh, by, by, by quite an extent by that point. Um, there was an article I was reading. It's a very well-written article. I'll try and, um, I'll try and uh, uh, dig it out. Um, and I think it was in Wired about why, why Game of Thrones Season 8 feels a bit off in terms of the writing. And they make the point in there that um, the, the first major plot arc was resolved in the third book. And that is basically Seasons, seasons 3 and 4. Um, and then it's after four, so going into five, where uh, at one point Martin was going to have like a five-year um, time skip ahead, but then realised that 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 was going to be very jarring, and he decided to sort of write his way through it. And right. as, as a result of that, it made everything much slower than it necessarily had to be. The whole point of the article is that there's two kinds of people. Uh, two kinds of writers in the world. There's those who plot everything meticulously and there's there's those who write as they go. And the people who write as they go have... There's advantages to both. The people who write as they go um, do very well because everything's character-driven and they're getting into the minds of the characters and the characters will dictate the situation. With a plot-driven writer, of course, everything will already be mapped out. They know exactly where they need to go, what they need to do. And... But the the downside, of course, is that sometimes the characters can feel like they're just vessels of the plot. And I think it is around that that just after season four where you can you can see that that switch happens where Martin had been trying to write his way through something painfully. The books ran out of steam because he couldn't break his way through it. And then and then the Game of Thrones staff writers sit down and then plot everything out meticulously with, okay, where are all the pawns? How do we move them to the end where we need them to be? And that's why I think you get the introduction of what people call the time warp, where suddenly people aren't travelling from place to place very slowly over the course of a season. They just seem to be hopping and jumping. It, it becomes more of a conventional TV show. Yeah. And, th- and that, when we jumped into season eight, when things were moving at a lightning pace, it didn't necessarily bother me too much because I thought, we're coming up to the climax here. This is when things in a movie would would potentially be going nineteen to the dozen like a freight train. Yeah. All the all the pieces are fall the dominoes are falling down. But um but you're right. I think I think the the fi- the last time the, the the shows were dealing with the source material, Martin was running out of steam and he he was struggling to write his way through something he hadn't planned for. And as a result of that there was no more source material anyway. He ran out of steam. And then they just had to tie everything up, basically. Uh, which is why it suddenly felt like it was a different show. And um, and uh, and uh, and everyone's very upset with that. But but in answer to your question, like I say, I think the rot had already set in, even with some of the source material. It's not finished. It's actually a great unfinished work as it stands. Yeah. Like um, some great unfinished uh, rock album or whatever, and um, you've got you've got fragments of it. You've got an indication. You can 
you can download the bootlegs of where it might have gone. But yeah. <laughs> uh, and and what and what you really have in the last couple of seasons is is the fan, the fan edit, where the fan has got the little pieces together of what was left, and then they've done their own fan edit, and someone online has slagged it off or whatever. <laughs> that's I think that's yeah. broadly speaking what's happened. I think there's insight there. I think that's a, and I think that's an astute way of looking at it. What you're speaking to is a clash of styles. I think there's a couple of ways in which it's a clash of styles. So as you said, the first three four maybe five seasons are written character intensive afterwards because there's uh, only a blueprint from martin you're right it begins to be written less like an author which we'd expect from those literary shows madman by wiener and uh the wire by simon and it moves away from that and becomes plot oriented because it's being written by television writers i mean like uh Critics are saying that Benioff and Vice are hacks. Uh, they didn't complain for the first five or six years. Yeah. And, and that leads me to my second point, which is that they were hired to adapt George R. R. Martin. They just weren't hired to write their own stuff. Yeah. Now, I suppose you could level the accusation that they should step aside, but who on earth, who on earth would do that six years in presuming to yourself that you can get it done in eight and then move on to something else. Yeah, Doctor Who does it all the time. You know, people do change showrunner. Um, Yeah, but Doctor Who's 50... Well, no, Doctor Who's 55 years old. That started with... Was it Hartnell or Troughton? That started in black and white. Yeah, but I'm talking about... I'm talking about Russell T. Davis era. Modern Doctor Who. Giving it to Moffat and then giving it to... Yeah, I'm I'm talking about Doctor Who, which was modelled off the back of Buffy. Um, I hasten to add, uh, Russell T. Davis was very upfront about that. He says, we're changing the model from a serialised thing, 20 minutes serialised, um, you know, each week you've got the next part of the story. It's told over many weeks. And he said, we're going on the Buffy angle, 45 minutes of television, basically a one and done, a two-parter for the finale. And and they've never strayed from that too much. And then after the first two, I'm not a huge Russell T. Davis fan. I'm watching years and years at the moment, quite enjoying it. But I've yeah. never never been a huge fan of his as a writer. But he's always interesting. You know, I, I always yeah. do enjoy what he's got to say. Um, but, yeah, so he, like I say, uh, after the Tenant era, he then handed over to Moffat. Moffat had that different tone, gothic. Um, I think I, I stopped watching toward the end of the Moffat era. Um, but And now there's another showrunner, isn't there, with, 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 um, with, the, with the new Doctor. But um, my point is, I think maybe if they were so desperate to get out and do some other stuff, Maybe they should have um, had a handover. I guess you know I, mm. I, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you, because um, HBO would have made that show forever. I really think they would have done. Yeah. I, I watched yeah. John Oliver, and uh, you know he he he's been he's been loving it because he he leads into Game of Thrones at the moment. He's been making loads of jokes about how HBO would have kept the show going if they wanted to, and 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 um, it was it was because the showrunners wanted to get get shot of it and and go on and do other stuff. They had the Lucasfilm uh, project coming in, but so maybe they hand maybe HBO just offered them so much money because they didn't want to take the risk on anyone else. So they thought, all right, we'll do it, we'll, but we'll do it on our terms, and it will be this many episodes, and we'll spread over this amount of time. Um, and I think maybe that was a mistake. Maybe they should have thought, yeah. you know what, we can go on another five years here with a different show. The Simpsons does it. You know, the, you can define the Simpsons eras by the different showrunners. And um, there's an argument if, is, as to whether what eras are the better, better ones and when, when, it lost, when that show lost its quality. 
But I, yeah, I think I they, they cocked up with Game of Thrones here. If they'd have locked the stars in, and I think they could have kept this thing going. Yeah. Uh, to amplify your point, when Larry left Seinfeld, it it the, it changed. I don't think the quality dropped off. I think those last two seasons are really funny. However, they're definitely really funny for a sitcom rather than the the best Cutting sitcom edge. that's ever been oh, made. Yeah, I, exactly. I think, yeah. yeah, I think there's a change. It's still hilarious, but there are increase, the, the situations are increasingly wacky. And I think they're the kind of episodes that, though I enjoyed them when I was 17, 18, 19, just getting into Seinfeld, if I went back to them... I'd think the same about seasons eight and nine of Seinfeld as I do as an adult watching seasons nine, ten and eleven or even eight, nine, ten of The Simpsons where, yes, the, it is still making me laugh. But when you're an adult, you get to the point where you say, I, I do need a bit more than that. I don't want to I don't want to be so easily manipulated. My manipulation comes at a higher price. I, I expect my comedy to be... Uh, slightly more sophisticated so i can't yeah. see the construction line so i i bet there are episodes of seinfeld in the middle seasons four five six where you don't even realize all the threads are coming together of the three or even sometimes four characters plot threads and it all binds into a ball at at the episode's end and you're cruising through not even considering how that could happen um you're right about you're right about benioff and vice uh this was so this is the, this is the burden. This is the burden of viewership. I'm not talking about fandom or even expectation, but we see Game of Thrones as an opportunity to make eight seasons, eight seasons, and every one of those seasons is groundbreaking television. Every one is ten fantastic episodes in service of what could be the greatest thing of all time. But I, I do have not not necessarily sympathy, but I would be empathetic to Benioff and Vice if they say quite plainly. We prepped this shit for a year. Then we pitched it. Then we made that first season. And then it was our lives for the next five years. We've been doing this for the best part of a decade. Ten years. Yeah. We want, we want to do something different. Just as, you know, not every band can stay together for 12 albums. Sometimes it's three or four. And then quite reasonably, those individuals say, I need to express myself in a different way. I'm becoming confined by these characters. And from the point of view of it being their gig and their lives and their artistic expression, I understand them moving on, r- rushing through this quickly. But this oh, speaks can, to a, yeah. this speaks to another point. It's something I touched on earlier. But between season seven and eight, I forgot how dull and how slow-paced Game of Thrones was in season five and season six, and I never thought I'd give it up. Because I knew it wouldn't run 12 years. I always thought I'd see it to completion. But it had become a, a, a trudge that was uh, that was bolstered by the goodwill generated by at least a dozen wonderful characters. And the character yeah. work that was done in the first three or four years was what uh, kept it going through these dull patches. And what I'm talking about is it was there was an error in pacing. So... I think seasons seasons five and six were poorly paced in that there was not enough plot to that the plot skeleton could barely support the uh, the number of episodes required. So we've definitely got in seasons five and six twenty episodes, and there might really only be enough plot for fifteen, yeah, maybe even twelve. I remember um, 
we'd got to the point where there were so many characters doing in, so many characters involved in the the broad plot that mm. you might get three minutes of a character per episode and it would flash from and meanwhile in marine and then back to the hound and are walking around for a bit now then back at winterfell oh yeah. and look who's still knocking about it's um lord baelish who survived beyond any kind of i mean when I think his character uh, persevered through well past the point of any meaningful interaction with the plot. And I think that's because there wasn't enough plot in those in seasons five and six. But then I in seasons agree. There, and there, seven there, and eight, there's threads, there's threads that I, we can come, I, I, I sorry to interrupt you, you can finish your thought, but mm. there, there's threads. I was reading articles about, oh, these are the threads that are unresolved. I couldn't even remember some of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But then in seven and eight, there's too much plot. And the pacing is off yeah. because it moves too quickly. Now, I agree with you. I think there's an impulse on the part of almost everyone involved, even the fans, to get this done. Let's get to that conclusion. Because mm-hmm. it's, it, it, there is excitement in that as well. But uh, 13 episodes for what needed to be done in seasons 7 and 8 wasn't enough. It's those seasons that probably should have been full 10-episode seasons. And part of the reason is because in... Moving too quickly, uh, we there isn't enough time spent with characters, and, and you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. We don't spend enough time with them walking around, getting from place to place. And the thing about Game of Thrones is that what it did exceptionally well was in those um, periods of downtime, yeah. we learned more about the characters and about their motivations. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of the problems, that probably the biggest problem with season eight is that Anybody can understand why Daenerys took the decision she did. Mm -hmm. But a mixed ability audience, people like you and I who've watched it from the beginning, at that pace, at that once, you know, 10 episodes over three months and then a whole year off, we'd understand it. But so too would the people who, as you say, started watching it in January or got the box set at Christmas and have raced through it. Yeah, she seemed to flip... um... On George Lucas speed, you know, where uh, George Lucas, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, uh, episode three, just, oh, right, he's bad now. Off we go. Because the the plot needs that that to be the case. Um, So I can see why people got peeved. I really can. But if we'd had, but, but by this point in season seven and eight, although there is a lot to accomplish, I think... Plenty of what needs to be accomplished is the uh, is the change in characters, which will then suffice as an explanation for their later decisions. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily that interesting, and it would have the same problem as the mid seasons, where yeah, far out we've got scenes of Jon Snow, Daenerys, and Tyrion and Varys going back and forth about whether to firebomb Dresden. But what yeah. the fuck is everyone else up to by this point? By season eight. In addition to that thread, there isn't really that much else going on. But I think they they would have struggled to make a sixty minute episode about Jon Snow being pensive. Because the other thing is like as well, I thought he was one of of all the characters in the show. I thought he was always among the most dull, um, the most uh, the most obscure, the least interesting. People he has kept to... saying it was his story, and I never quite got that. Apart from the fact that he was a bastard and he didn't have didn't really have a mama didn't really have a papa and as a result of that I, I could see why 
um, you know, like every Disney movie is about an orphan. You, you, do you yeah. know what I mean? Luke Skywalker is an orphan. There's a hero's journey trope there somewhere. Um, maybe on that level, I can understand it. But yeah, he was dull. I don't think Kit Harrington's performance ever never excited me that much. But a fan favourite, I think we're in the minority with the Jon Snow comment there. One of the problems with Game of Thrones is that it attracts normal people. I'll just put it as simply as that. <laughs> fewer normal, fewer normal people watch The Wire. Yeah, and that's there true. are different expectations. I think even fewer normal people watch Mad Men, and uh, this is yeah, one of the lot one of the. I wanted to make an analogy, and I think I can just about pull it off. I'm not a Star Trek fan. You know that. I know that you are. However, mm-hmm. I do know enough to know that Star Trek, and then the Next Generation, and as far as I'm aware, even Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but certainly Star Trek with Shatner and The Next Generation was largely diplomacy and conversations about morality in space. It was like being in the Navy. They're sailing forever and there's a lot of time to talk about things. Mm-hmm. But then the films increasingly, and especially under J.J. Abrams, have become action spectacle to the point where by the third one, uh, I think it's Justin Lin, it may even be the director of Fast and Furious. It is, yeah. Yeah, and that there are points, it's been noted that there are action sequences in Star Trek Three which are interchangeable with something from any other franchise. And I think that's increasingly what Game of Thrones became about. I, I tuned in from the very beginning. It was about, it was sober, witty discussions about power, uh, the nature of ruling, diplomacy. And then along the way, it became an action spectacle. But that it wasn't that for a long time. There were action episodes on occasion... There were brawls, but it's the difference between... You could say that the first three seasons were directed by Walter Hill, and then the last two seasons were directed by James Cameron, where it goes from sword play and yeah. armed hand-to-hand combat to <laughs> entire armies laid waste. Yeah, yeah, I take your point. Um, but the way I saw it, when, when, when it was kicking off, when, when season eight was kicking off, and this is in defence of season eight, um, I almost saw it as a just the final act in 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 the play and therefore yeah. all the pe- you had the first couple episodes winterfell where they were just recapping on where everyone was and the allegiance where everyone who everyone was aligned with and i remember going into work and everyone was sort of rubbing their hands together going this is it now we know we know where everyone who's everyone who everyone's allegiances are with we we know where people stand now now it's going to kick off, and uh, and then when we started to get these all-out action episodes, it almost made sense to me. I thought, well, yeah, this is the this is the end of it, isn't it? This is this is the final act, and uh, they they have been building up to the the uh, the fight with the undead since since the opening scene of the first ever episode, and this is just where all the all the dominoes come come tumbling down. Yeah. Um, but then I suppose. Uh, then I suppose uh, it continued like that, maybe. I mean, m- maybe there should have been two or three episodes of the aftermath um, instead of instead of just the one. Uh, I was defending it up until the end. I, I really was. I was defending season eight, and I just thought, well, what, what, are you, what do you expect? This is, this is what it is. It's the final season. It's the culmination of all things. They've recapped where everyone is, who everyone's aligned with, and this is it. If you if you came into a film in the last forty five minutes, an action film in the last forty five minutes, this is what you'd be seeing. 
Yeah. Um, it wasn't until the very final episode where I thought I could actually see the cracks. And I, I, I thought, no, this really, the writing really has suffered. And it was the moment where you had the, the council, the Grand Council, and it was just the most phoned-in attempt at, a, at any kind of a scene. It, it was like they were hungover or they were trying to get to the pub, wrote yeah. that in 10 minutes, gave it gave it to the cast to speak. Um, I, I could not believe when, when uh, it was... And I likened, when I was speaking to people at work about it, I likened it to a scene of Sesame Street where it was, D is for democracy. <laughs> because <laughs> so, so, suddenly all the characters start saying... Word, almost word for word what if uh, we let people govern themselves and then everyone laughs and I just thought it was oh it was mad and even Dinklage yeah. didn't, couldn't quite save it do you know what I mean hmm. and then and and for what people pr- criticise Lucas for the prequels you know I saw that in abundance in that scene and um, and then when it's finally agreed but then but then she has to interject and say Okay, you're gonna, you'll be a brother. You'll be a wonderful king, but uh, the North suffered too much. We'll be an independent state, and everyone just turns around. Oh, it's settled then. Brilliant. And it, it just, it was so underwritten. Yeah. It, I thought it was. Um, I, I really, that really let me down. I'd been defending season eight up until that point. I thought, and I hate this phrase, but I thought, well, you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> this, 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 this is kind of how it should end anyway. But what else could they have done? This stuff was all going to kick off. They did it in um, as big a spectacle as they possibly could. Um, what else was it really going to be, really? And but then when that final episode, I just thought this is the shoddiest writing I think I've seen. This side of Star Trek Discovery, which is very bad. Mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that, that that for me was when it almost... Could I say it jumped the shark on that final episode at that moment? It, to me, it was when it really did... I could actually see through the... Uh, that was seeing through the curtain, seeing there was a little guy on the other side on a bike yeah. just pedalling madly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, one of the problems with... Oh man, once I get into it I start to wonder whether they can write at all, what even that means, what writing for television means, what it means to be a showrunner because I've already said that I think their pacing was off, it was off in the middle and it was definitely off at the end but then we get to the lack of zesty dialogue which is what kept me with the show at its inception and sustained me through it all the wonderful dialogue in the mouths of Jerome Flynn as Bron and Rory McCann as the Hound so many great character actor performances and that was all lost by season eight and then so the pacing's off and that's the plot so the pacing of the plot is finished so that's a strike against them they've no Mm -hmm. longer they no longer have the capacity to write that great british northern that truly british dialogue it's one of the best things about it how often excuse the profanity but you have to hear it how often on american television do you hear cunt deployed properly and Game of Thrones was chock-a-block with that. People swearing as swearing is meant to be done. Nothing postmodern about it. They weren't stretching. It was proper British swearing by British people. But that was all gone. Maybe because they no longer Saxon, had George Martin. Yes, say. yes, it, yes, you're right. It was, it was properly, yeah, properly Anglo-Saxon. I actually, I took some pride in it as a cultural export. Even though its showrunners are American, its writer is American... 
but it feel it's a very European production. There's barely an American in it, aside from Dinklage. Mm-hmm. Over time, uh, they threw in uh, Tom Vlasher, who I think is Polish German, a few Scandinavians, and Nikola Costa Waldau. It it felt rich in its uh, European identity, but so they lost the pacing, they lost the dialogue, and then episodes and scenes began to feel like Wikipedia summations. As you say, you could get as much from watching that scene take place as you could from the next day reading an entry which says Tyrion appeals for peace and suggests that Bran should be king. All agree, however, uh, Ginger says the North is its own independent state and they concur. Which really, I mean, and a scene like that, one of the problems with it is that it's unbelievable in its brevity because anybody watching it knows that that's not how you end a war. It's always a cheat as well with um, with any, as Seinfeld did it, uh, I think MASH has done it a bunch, Star Trek's done it, um, X-Files has done it. Uh, It's always a little bit of a cheat when you want to say... I want to set some drama up very easily with opposing views. Right, it's going to be a courtroom scene. Ha ha! Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you, and you, you do. You do it as a trial. You do You're it right, as a courtroom. Yeah. You do it as a debate. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it's always a telltale sign when you realise I need to, I need to tie a lot up in a very short space of time. I need a lot of opposing views. How do I do that in the most organic way possible? Yeah, I guess they could be in a courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's you see, you're very perceptive there, and I think that comes from our age, but also a grounding in the mechanics of '90s television. Again, you see the cogs turning, you see the construction lines and the strings being pulled when presented with a scene like that. That's when I re- thought, okay, now I need to rewatch season eight again, or at least go back to what people were saying, all the people that yeah. were criticizing it, and I was defending it, and I was like, well, you know, what, what was it going to be anyway? Really, come on, guys, source material's gone. They have to tie loose ends up. We all wanted to see some of this stuff kick off because they've been hinting at White Walkers from the very first scene of the first season. This stuff all had to come to a head, and this is the final act in the play. This is when it all kicks off, and but then that, that those final moments in the final episode were so bad. I thought, now I need to go back and I need to question how good some of this other stuff was because that was that it, it it was too much for me to take. Um, it was one of the, I was cringing, physically cringing on the sofa when I was watching it. Uh, yeah. It was it was that cheesy and that terrible. I almost thought at some point I'm going to wake up and realise that this season was, uh, this this episode was a con. And then that's when I realised how the hardcore fans must have felt. The people who have the the tattoos of Daenerys and all this kind of thing. I thought, oh man, I guess they were feeling this cheated a few weeks back. Uh, it's It's just taken me this long. Yeah, but their perception of it... I'm glad you brought this up because I think there are people for whom no amount of exposition or character building in the last two seasons would have could have possibly justified what they see as a heel turn by their feminist icon but at least in those episodes it maintained the moral complexity that the show has always had i'll give you the best example in a moment but i i think no one questioned daenerys's methods while she was putting to the sword people that we were told were baddies Mm. 
and uh, an in- a complete lack of empathy and um, an enjoyment in spectacle mm. meant that it was never considered just what it meant when she was uh, eviscerating and um, annihilating enemy after enemy only because, number one, she considered them her enemy and number two, because she believed in monarchy. Those uh, seeds uh, were, were being sown from day one and I, it bums me out that that people um, that people were upset by it, but by the turn, because it... it, 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 it They've been building up to that, and it is Jon Snow the bastard, the guy with no family, who was negotiating with the enemy, negotiating with wildlings and all the all the, when everyone else said, "What the hell are you doing?" He he was the one that was building. <laughs> okay, now I feel like a Game of Thrones season eight writer. He was the one <laughs> building bridges, not walls. Uh, yeah. Whereas she was the one essentially just just charging, riding roughshod, uh, you know, through the through the wilderness. Yeah. Um, and we, we, of course, we sympathised and empathised because we'd seen her sold by her brother um, to a, potentially a life of essentially rape and uh, um, subjugated. servitude. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Um, so very clever because right from the beginning we go, she was a slave and she's overcome through her own determination and earned the respect of her essentially captors. So therefore, we've got complete sympathy and empathy with, with, with her point of view. So when it's the breaker of chains and all of this, yes, we're cheering her on to an extent. Jon Snow the bastard, outcast, he's the one trying like hell to, to, to build some sort of diplomacy with complete wild people in the woods uh, mm. and, and thugs in, in the face of people who um, don't at first don't respect him. All of this stuff was there. It's just yeah. that, I guess, like you say, it maybe people felt cheated because it was too. It was just all wrapped up so quickly in that final season. But to me, all of this was making complete sense. You and I were talking yeah, about yeah. season eight midway through, and I could see why everyone was doing what they were doing. It was yeah. it was only that final episode where the dialogue was so good. I mean, luckily there was no dialogue in most of the other episodes. It was just fighting. So I, I just figured yeah, it was yeah. fine. And there was moments I, I really... There were cinematic moments I really enjoyed in some of these episodes. The actual um, White Walker fight episode, The Long Night, I thought there was fantastic stuff in there with um, the, the the zombies walking through, with Arya and the zombies in the in the library. You know, yes, it was yeah. almost a Resident Evil or, or like Night of the Living Dead moment, but m- maybe the genre got, fan of me was, was enjoying that. You know, uh, it was Raptors in the Kitchen, wasn't it? That was, I was enjoying moments like that. Some of it was quite fun. Um, there was a decent visual metaphor as the Dothraki charged with their flaming swords and then their lights were one by one extinguished. That was lovely. Mm. All hope is lost. I thought that that moment as well, I'd forgot Melisandre was still knocking about and she comes forward. I thought, where the fuck has she been? What's happening? I couldn't even remember if she was still a goodie or not. Yeah. And then she lights the sword. Yes, yes. Um, I'll... Um, yeah, let's continue on. Ah, well, where to go next? I, I want to reverse back slightly. I quote Mission Impossible 3, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He says to Tom Cruise, you can tell a lot about a person the way they treat somebody when they don't have to treat them well. And the only... The, the legitimacy that Daenerys Targaryen had for her actions 
was that they were baddies and that she was destined by birthright to be queen of Westeros. But you don't have to do that to your enemies. And I'm interested in this. I think intentionally or otherwise, this speaks to... Uh, and this probably is a reflection on what I think, what I'm preoccupied with at the moment. But I think the way that Daenerys worked is uh, can be seen as a comment on how we treat our enemies, on how in modernity the merest trespass results in a fantastic overreaction, but the justification is always, well, they said something I perceive to be racist, and all racists are evil. You don't, you don't support racism, do you? Well then, they deserve to die. And it's and it's again and again. They said something sexist. Well, they're scum to me. They said something I perceive as transphobic. Well, then they're they're lower than low. And yeah, it's the whole George, a, a, the whole George Bush, um, George W. Bush. If you're not with me, you're my enemy. Yeah, uh, it's, with it's a, very a whole, disturbing. Whole dealing in absolutes thing. Yeah, and uh, it it as soon as an injustice is perceived, that opponent is in Scientology terms is utterly fair game. You can do what you like to them. Because you have the moral imperative. And what happens when you lose that moral imperative? And that's what happened uh, in that episode, in, in the episode The Bells. Finally, mm. um, finally, Daenerys was met with a people that didn't welcome her. And it's, it's pretty easy to get people on your side when you're literally uh, freeing them from servitude. Mm. That's an easy way to make friends. But there, as soon as there was... A level of moral complexity. She'd arrived in what she considered to be her homeland, but clearly wasn't. She was considered as an outsider, which she was, as less popular than another bloke. And by the way, he has a more legitimate claim to a throne, which you and I, Luke, and many other people should absolutely be saying, get rid of the monarchy. This is ridiculous. This is literally <laughs> feudal. You shouldn't have people in charge just as they were born into it. I don't care if there were three centuries of Targaryens. You shouldn't, mm. you shouldn't subscribe to a monarchy. Um... And so, for the first time, she had uh, genuine adversity of uh, the, the proletariat. They, she was met with indifference, and mm. she perceived them as an enemy. And that's the thing. Everywhere, too many, too many critics have said, "Why would she lay waste to innocent people?" Well, guess what, dummies? To her, they weren't innocent. They ran mm. to Cersei, therefore they're a legitimate target. They are the Germans in Dresden. You know that they're perceived as enemy, and that's why she did it because she saw them as an enemy, and so. Just as uh, all of the slavers at Slavers Bay, just as every other enemy she'd ever met, she met them with fire. Yeah, I don't know and, how and, people and, lost that. And and the parallels with Japan, I think, were were pretty obvious. Um, yeah, I yeah. Went to the, I went to the British Library over ten years ago now um, to look at a lot of photography from from that period and and in the immediate aftermath, looking at charred bodies, burnt bodies. It was one of the most disturbing things I think I've ever looked at. And it was it was very clear the uh, the parallels I think that they were looking to draw there. So um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I hope that people have watched that and thought about how it relates to themselves because you can't scourge the earth of your enemies. Aidan and I were talking about this, and I know Luke that you agree with me as well. There is a sliver in the middle, twelve fifteen percent of the population, or, or rather the, the voters, and. You need to, uh, they need to be convinced of your opinions. Yeah. You can't just uh, uh, discard them as deplorable and ignore them. You'll never win an election. You'll never be in charge. Mm. And I hope that 
some I hope that people can look at what Daenerys did mm. and then think about how we react to our enemies, how we broke a peace. It's the, the the adage is to uh to make peace you must prepare for war, but then an important part of war is making peace. At the end of World War Two, I think it was called Operation Unthinkable, and that was Winston Churchill's plan to rearm Germany and go after the Soviets. Germany was on its knees, had surrendered, and Churchill said, fantastic, now we give them guns and we go after Russia immediately, let's go. And it's at that point that his cabinet and the politicians around him said, there needs to be an end, war has to end, no, we're not, no one is ready for that, we can't do that, it has to end at some point. And yeah, you know, maybe he could have been right in as much as Russia's been problematic to us in the West for the last 70 years, but you can't just keep killing. Mm. Uh, I think that episodes, uh, I think the episode The Bells speaks to things, uh, speaks to those concepts, I feel. No, 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 I agree. We were talking about it a lot after the, um, after we saw that episode happen. 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, though, The Bells. People were not, not liking it. <laughs> and that's so... ideological, because as spectacle, as a piece of, enter- uh, as a piece of television, not as an entertainment, because it's, it's more than that. Uh, I don't think that anything like that has ever been evoked on television before to that extent. It was staggering. And, and one of the smartest points was, I thought, to put Arya on the ground, they're not entirely fucking awful writers, to put Arya on the ground, then she can see what Daenerys is doing to what she considers her enemies to be. So every time we've been alongside Daenerys as she conquers... Conquers! She's conquering! She's conquering! She's a conquering monarch! Every time we're on her side and we see her in her executions and her incinerations uh, and we all felt that we were on the side of good. Well, what happens when you flip it to the other side and you're now on the ground with the people that she considers her aggressors? It's art of carnage. It's the worst thing that you could ever imagine. Mm. That's an, I, think, I feel that's an important, an important thing to show in a programme which until then had, at least with the Targaryen, at least with Daenerys' plot strand had been a uh, relentless, enthusiastic conquest. And then you see what it's like to be on the other side. As George yeah. R. R. Martin himself has said, your hero is just the other side's villain. Yeah. And that's, and that's what Daenerys was. And, you know, in terms of uh, getting her to that point, yes, season eight was abbreviated, and so they, they definitely didn't write three or four scenes that could have got there. But like, the other seven seasons did the job. Yeah, I, 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 I'm in complete agreement. Um, to what extent do you think this affects the legacy of the show? Because clearly that final season has been much maligned. You and I, I think, are both in agreement that, broadly speaking, the narrative beats and the lessons, that the, 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 the themes that it's weaving in and what it's trying to say match up very well with the rest of the show and um, at least conclude the story. Um, in, in in an appropriate way, if not if if not a satisfactory one, but um, to to what extent do you think this affects rewatch value, Game of Thrones box sets, key rings, uh, yeah. all the rest of it, the spin off shows? Do, do you think this is going to leave such a sour taste in people's mouths that this is it? Because I think people drop stuff like a ton of bricks these days. Um, well, you know, let them. They're the ones that will they'll miss out on the depth of riches throughout the series but particularly in those first three maybe even first five or six seasons uh, i think that no show should be judged by its 
finale or even by its final season. And it's probably fair to say as well that no show should be judged by its first season. You've got a, If something runs eight years, it stands to reason it's probably going to be years two, three, four and five that are the best. Once it hits its stride. Now, I think that Game of Thrones season one is as good as anything they've ever done. But yeah, then I agree. You, you, you can't stop there. And I'll, I'll draw our attention to... Um, I was talking about the moral complexity of the show, Blackwater, second season. It was then that I, while watching, at the advert break, essentially taking a walk around the lounge, thinking, this is ama- the way this show is making me think is amazing. So in the Battle of the Blackwater, we've got Stephen Delane's character, um, Stannis Baratheon, who mm. I think, yeah, you know, he's a Baratheon. He's, he has the greatest legitimacy to the throne, and he seems to be an adequate war leader, a bit of a grumpy bastard, yeah, but he he should be on the throne, and I love Davos, Liam Cunningham's Davos, one of my favourite characters, right? So ostensibly, I want them to win that battle. However, and I and I hate Joffrey because he's there to hate, and it's a terrific performance by what's his name, Jack Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I want Stannis Baratheon to win. However, on the ground, we've got uh, Peter Dinklage's Tyrion, and Rory C- Rory McCann Sandor Clegane. Again, two of my favourite characters, wonderful characters, and I think, yeah, but I, uh, I like Tyrion, so I, I want, <laughs> I, I want him to, I, I don't want him to be proven wrong. I want his plot and his plans to succeed, even though the other bloke should be the king. This character's so rich, and and fun and intelligent and even-handed. I want him to be proven successful, so we can have more of him. And I love Bronn, and he's got Bronn with him, and uh, yeah. Bronn's one of my, possibly my favourite character, because he is, uh, the simplest way to put it is that he's got an earthy working class humour about him. In a kingdom of landed gentry, he does, he, he's a, like a social climber, isn't he, really? And he's honest as well. The only thing he, he says, the only thing he cares about is gold. Fuck bitches, get money. <laughs> and it's, and I, th- I think because of that, I saw in The Bells what I first saw in Blackwater, the mere concept of heroes and villains is bankrupt. Yeah. Because you, because every one of these characters is interesting. Although for me, as I've said, Jon Snow and Daenerys, neither of them are... I've, I've not found either of them compelling. And that's why one of my favourite episodes of all time was when they finally did Magnificent Seven, went off into the frozen wastes to bring back the white, and it teamed the Hound, Gendry... Don Darian, Don Darian's yeah. priest. Uh, I I can't remember if Davos was with them or not. But this is um, you again. It's it's those all those moments the actors got to get in, got to get their teeth into as well. Uh, like you say, you know, pairing people off and uh, seeing what happens when you put this group of people together and, and yeah. with that sparky dialogue and and then and then just watching it unfold. That's something that actors enjoyed, and um, there's these super cuts you can get now on YouTube, and there's an article we can certainly reference in the show notes, um, which I was reading uh, from Harper's Bazaar, where they basically just just there's a lot of red carpet moments with the stars just as season eight was about to kick off, or just halfway through season eight, and it's very clear that a lot of the cast members are talking about that they weren't getting some of those character character moments. So Lord Varys says how how bummed out he was in in his final scene um that he he wasn't getting a chance to have some of those those moments that he used to have with Dinklage and 
um, yeah. where they were talking about being freaks and outcasts and this kind of thing. It, it was, uh, I think, uh, Amelia Clark um, uh, sarcastically mentions that uh, sort of says like best season ever with with and then laughs nervously um, because uh, and after after they mentioned you know what was your what was your final um, moment like uh, and I think um, Cersei. Um, and I think um, Lena Headey. I I I need to reread the um, some of the stats, but I think someone worked out she was on something like twenty thousand dollars a minute or something for that <laughs> final final season. Maybe forty thousand. I can't remember because of course yeah. mo- mostly she ended up staring out of a window. Um, and I I wonder potentially if she just did all of her sh- scenes in one day on a blue screen or something. Do you know what I mean? She could have just yeah been been staring out. And she you know she didn't have any. Where was her moment with um with with Danny? You know where was her moment to yeah. to ha- where was their moment together to have have um like a face off or and and not necessarily donning a sword or whatever, but just just a a war of words or just yeah. seeing what their opposing views were. Where Danny realised maybe they were the same, realised there was nothing, no daylight between them as people. You know, they they were both yeah. ruling over others. You know, they, 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 where were those moments? I think I think the cast felt that absence of it. Um, but on the flip side, like I say, <laughs> they did it in thirteen episodes and uh, they made sure they got the big battles in there. Hmm. Yeah, we we have been shortchanged culturally. I don't mean to sound entitled. I mean, I pay for it. You pay for it. Some of the motherfuckers that are complaining haven't spent a dime on mm-hmm. the thing. They're downloading it illegally. I, I know I, some of those people, yeah. Yeah, and I, you literally don't have a right. It's like getting a bootleg. Uh, you don't. You simply don't have a right to an opinion if you're not going to pay for it. Especially, and I, I'm speaking particularly with HBO stuff because the only reason Game of Thrones can look like it does, as I said with those sets and those costumes and a cast of hundreds and dozens of memorable, fantastic British actors. Charles Dance, man. Uh, The only reason it can do that is because it costs a bomb and it's got the might of HBO behind it. You give that to any other channel and we wouldn't have got eight great seasons. Sorry, we we wouldn't have got eight seasons out of it. We wouldn't have got the Mm. spectacles we've had. We wouldn't have had Blackwater... uh, uh, I've, I've only seen the Battle of the Bastards once, and it didn't touch me that strongly. But Blackwater was tremendous. Blackwater was was better than the Bastards, I think. Yeah, you're right. Long Long Night was good as well. Um, I wanted to think about. I said earlier how, over time, the show became more about spectacle than it became about diplomacy and politics, and what kept me in the show to begin with. And I understand that's natural, as we've said. It has to reach a conclusion. There has to be some battles. This can't go on forever. Um, but my single favourite scene of all of Game of Thrones is episode 8 of season 6. It's an episode called No One. It's the episode after the Hound comes back. And he'd been away for all of season 5 and most of season 6. And I think you'll remember it. Um, the Hound and Ian McShane had been building a temple. Uh, then some fuckers came along and killed Lovejoy. Mm-hmm. So then episode 8, he's looking for those bastards. And he finds them... Uh, held captive and about to be hung by Beric Dondarrion's men. And that short four-minute scene contains everything that makes Game of Thrones notable. Clegane. The fuck you doing here? Chasing them. You? Hanging them. 
Any particular reason? There are men. Or they were. They attacked a nearby sept and murdered the villagers. Why do you want them? Same reason. I was helping build it. They killed a friend of mine. You've got friends? Not anymore. They're mine. It's the Brotherhood's good name they've dragged through the dirt. Fuck your name, they're mine. Killed you once before, Dundarian. Happy to do it again. Drop that arrow, you bloody girl. Tougher girls than you have tried to kill me. You can have one of them. Two. We're not butchers. We hang them. Hanging? All over in an instant. Where's the punishment in that? They die. They all bloody die. Except this one here. I've only got one of them. No. Chop off one hand. We gave you two of the three out of respect for your loss. That's generous. Bunch of nonsense. There's a time I would have killed all seven of you just to get these three. You're getting old, Clitheroe. He's not. There's the pithy, sweary lyricism. And, and what continues in this, in this scene is a very practical and real-world discussion of vengeance and justice mm. as Clegane and Dondarrion argue over which of these men he can execute himself. And then the next scene, they're sat by the riverbank eating. Um, the hound says he wishes it was chicken. And again, there's a, a relatively complex conversation, bearing in mind that <laughs> Clegane literally killed Dondarrion and now they're sitting down talking and eating. There's mutual hatred, but also admiration. You ought to join us. We could use you. I tried joining. Didn't work out for me. Clegane, we're here for a reason. The Lord of Light is keeping Beric alive for a reason. He gave a failed drunk priest the power to bring him back. For a reason. We are part of something larger than ourselves. Half the horrible shit in this world gets done for something larger than ourselves. Cold winds are rising in the north. And you're going to go stop them. We need good men to help us. Last time you saw me, you wanted to execute me. True enough. But the Lord of Light gave you the power to defeat me. Why? <laughs> I beat you because I'm better than you, Beric. I was better than you before you started yammering on about the Lord. And I'm better than you now. Ah, you're probably right. You're a fighter. You were born a fighter. You walked away from the fight. How did that go? Good and bad, young and old. The things we're fighting will destroy them all alike. You can still help a lot more than you've harmed Clegane. It's not too late for you. It's one of the key moments, I think, in the series. It showed that even for Sandor Clegane, that there was redemption out there. And that wrapped me into... This is what brought me back into it. As I said, I was bored through season five and most of season six. There's mm -hmm. individual scenes and individual episodes which are exciting or memorable. But it was when the Hound joined the Brotherhood without banners. And uh, 
then, as I mentioned earlier, those men set off north to capture the zombie. And yeah, you realise sure. that they are united by fate, something bigger than themselves, which yeah. at first Sandor makes fun of. And, and it, when uh, Dondarrion says, you can be part of something bigger than yourself, the Hound replies, "All oh, that half the heinous shit in the world has been done by people saying it was for something bigger than themselves. And while he does that, he quite gratuitously rises from the ground and takes a piss in the river. He doesn't need to urinate in their only water source. <laughs> he could go up a tree... And the metaphor is quite stark. But those men band together, and then I realised, I haven't seen this explained elsewhere, those seven samurai have all been touched by the Lord of Light. Tormund says that gingers are touched by fire. Mm. Uh, Jon Snow himself, of course, has been resurrected by Melisandre. Yeah. Beric was resurrected by his priest. The Hound was scarred as a child when his face was pushed into the brazier by his evil fucking bastard brother, and mm. has forever since been afraid of fire. Uh, and Gendry had the leeches on him. And that's the plot thread that brought me back into it. I, I never could be bothered with... Um, I never could be bothered with Dragon Lady. But it was the fight against... It was the diplomacy in King's Landing uh, and the manoeuvring, but also the notion that none of that even matters. Because if mm. we don't deal with these zombies, the, yeah. the winter's coming and, and we're all doomed. And so sending those men up there and that, that band, like Magnificent Seven... I yeah, really like yeah. that. And and I think that's what Game of Thrones, even at its weakest, it could still produce instances of episodes like that until, as you say, until the last season when the pacing went, the dialogue went, the mo character motivation went, and you were just left mainly with spectacle. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. That was the final, the final great plot thread, potentially. That that and that was good fun. You're reminding me of so many great moments, and yeah. um, obviously the battle of the dead, battle of the undead is a, is a plot that they were able to. They decided to focus on. Uh, you know that final season, they decided, okay, what what things do we resolve? What things do we um, focus on to, to to sort out? And um, there were so many things that didn't necessarily come to fruition in the same way, um, and a lot of people are left. I think um, upset that the the, the prophecy uh, of Cersei, for example, that she was going to have these kids that were going to all die, and then she would eventually die at the uh, the, the hands of a brother. Um, did that really happen? Like, not not really. Uh, did Bran's powers ever really come go anywhere or come to fruition? Um, yet there are so many little things like that. One I'd forgotten about when I was reading online: uh, Howland Reed. It was a name I didn't even remember. And, uh, of course, a lot of fans are saying it's that chap who was um, sitting on the, the, the council at the end. Um, that he, he was supposed to be uh, the father uh, of... Who? From the very... Thomas Brody Sangster, right? The kid that's... He turns up in one of the new Star Wars films and he was with... Does, yeah. Bran when they went north of the wall and met Max von Sydow, who is also in one of the Star that's Wars it. films... That yeah. kid, right? And he had the the dark-haired sister. Yeah, yeah. Some of the yeah, some of the uh, family links uh, became obscure, not convoluted, but it requires reaching back. And again, this is why um, some of this is mo much more current to people who've watched every episode in the last two years. Whereas I, it's been seven years since I've seen that first season. In fact, it's probably eight years. Uh, I can barely remember Sean Bean. Whereas there's people who watched the season eight with us, 
but whose first introduction to it was much more recent. I've only ever watched these seasons, generally speaking, as they come out. If not as they come out live, then certainly as they come out on home video or streaming. So I've I've watched it over the course of many years, and there's been long gaps in between seasons for me where I've um, you know, especially like you say, with the gaps that we've just had between between eight and seven, where uh, I'm I'm really struggling to remember who some of these people were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't recognise that. The kid who was on Titty Milk until he was nine years old had grown up to become that Jonas brother looking hottie. In fact, I honestly thought it was one of the Jonas brothers in a bit of stunt casting because in the past they have stuck in musicians. They had Ed Sheeran. I think a bloke from Coldplay was in it. Maybe one from, yeah, Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol sung a song at one point. I yeah, think. yeah, that's true. Uh, it's it's colossal. This, what's up, this final season and just a couple of its episodes have overshadowed what a colossal achievement this has been, I don't know if it can be replicated. As you say, it started, it spans the transition from old television to new television. Mm. It began essentially pre-streaming. I don't know if this programme could be made in the current environment. I don't know. It was Game of Thrones was a proper slow burner. That's one of the things I loved about it when I was watching it and then by the second or third season when people said, I'm not really into fantasy, and I could say, but listen, you don't, there's not even stuff. Like, there isn't, there, there are hardly any fantasy elements. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a political drama. Yeah. Which is lot, full of hilarity. A lot of people used to say to me, um, oh, it's Lord of the Rings with uh, tits or whatever, but I thought, well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Lord of the Rings is. It's, uh, it, it, yeah. it doesn't have a lot of, fantasy elements really there's there's a few um it's just set in a fantasy world is that a better way of putting it you know it's yeah but it, up and it's not way. even that fantastical and that's why the the the, the measured well-paced drip feed of fantastical elements in the first two or three seasons worked especially well for me and, and makes it more horrifying or enchanting mm. at, with its pacing uh just the notion that when Khaleesi's out conquering with the Dothraki and she meets that witch mm. and something, something fucked up happens in a tent. Mm. Again, this is a, this is a distant memory for me, but it's dark and I yeah. was fairly chilled and it was unnerving, not quite Lynchian, but it was a scene of horror. Yeah. yeah. A, a scene of real horror, which wasn't just zombies, but something more like we've transcended a boundary and crossed a barrier which shouldn't have been crossed, and now a toll will be taken. <laughs> and it continued in very slowly in that vein. I mean, the first three or four years was mainly about people eventually having battles. And I remember as well, you know, once we got into Ramsey Bolton, he's just so fucking evil. You get into that Walking Dead uh, problem where what can surpass the most evil man we've met? Walking Dead's had that for years. Yeah. It's, uh, you won't believe how bad this baddie is, but wait, wait until you see next season. This guy trumps that guy. Whoa, he's even worse. The Ramsey, well, the, yeah, the Ramsey Bolton stuff wasn't all that interesting to me. Uh, but that wasn't really the point, was it? He just affected some... He affected our uh, some of our core people badly, and it was, it was more what they then did with the aftermath, the way that they were left yeah, physically yeah. scarred or mentally scarred by him. 
So I guess maybe Bolton was never supposed to be that interesting of a character or whatever. But I do struggle with the whole uh, torture porn kind of thing, you know. I've, I've never been a huge fan of it anyway. The thing about Game of Thrones, people watch it for different reasons. It's, it's clear to me that uh, people who came late to it, maybe in season three, four or even later, they came because they heard there were dragons and uh, strong heroines and dashing heroes... It was something different when it began, and it's only because this is the thing. It was only successful because of what it began as, but then its success changes it, and other things are demanded of it. I don't think that they, any time the showrunners necessarily bowed to fan pressure significantly, mm. but um, yeah, it, it began as a slightly smaller in scale, always with the intention of growing, but slightly smaller in scale. I look forward to watching it all again. It's one of the few shows that I could actually be bothered to. Like, um, I'd like to with Mad Men, but its pace was glacial. Quite effectively, I don't think it should have been faster than it was. And I don't relish going back to Mad Men as I do the prospect of watching Game of Thrones again in its entirety. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I'll ever re-watch Game of Thrones. Um, ah, oh, I don't wow. think I'll ever re-watch... Mad Men, I can't see it. I can't see it happening. Um, I don't think I need to rewatch Breaking Bad. Um, any of these things, t- t- for me, th- I think there's something fundamental in my heart and soul where I struggle with the narrative of um, of of these TV shows. I enjoy watching them when I watch them. Um, of course, The Sopranos, I think, is. It's potentially immensely rewatchable. I don't think they ever really dropped the ball with The Sopranos. But I think I, I ultimately I prefer watching a, a, a film narrative where you know that there's a beginning, a middle and end that's done. I enjoy these things whilst they're on. I enjoy watching them. And, and you have just reminded me of so many wonderful character moments, which... Um, you know, I'll probably relive again in some way, whether it's watching the clips on YouTube and stuff. But I think that I like to see where these things go. And uh, it's an experience that I have at that time and that point in my life. There's something about television that's fundamental to that. And I think if you... if if you can't, so often these things are at the end are truncated. X Files is another example, and um, they're they're not tainted. Tainted's too strong a word, but for me, it does ultimately affect the rewatchability of of a lot of this stuff. When um, mm. when I could maybe watch something else, like The Godfather, or something that I think is perfectly formed. Or even Ghostbusters, for God's sake. You know, whatever it is, yeah. I enjoy watching something that's that's so well honed and, and, and tweaked like a piano string, tightened to perfection, so perfectly in tune. And then I, I can watch it all be set up and knocked down. And uh, just like hearing hearing a great joke again and again. You know, if someone's really good at... If a stand-up comic is really good at telling a bit, uh, you don't mind how many times you you hear that bit, do you? Because it's, it's so well well honed. With a, but with a lot of these extended narratives of uh, of, of your Game of Thrones and, and the X Files, that kind of thing, I'll definitely helicopter back in and relive individual episodes, maybe 
individual moments, but I the rewatchability of it that's just that's something that I I enjoy in in kind of the real time of of when they're on to an ex- certain extent. That's very well explained. It's very well explained, and it's it's kind of a rebuttal to the. Uh... It's a rebuttal to the argument that this should be considered as, um, you know, an eight-season-long movie, but it has it has been significantly compromised in the last two seasons. And and if something's if the last forty minutes of a film shits the bed, and doesn't really come back from that, like I was talking with Aidan about Dunkirk, and you know my reservations about that, but it pulls it back. Yeah, I think it goes wrong after forty-five, fifty minutes, and I was disengaged for twenty, twenty-five minutes. But then the final 20 minutes completely reinvested me in the undertaking. And by the end, I was as exultant as I had been earlier on. That, that can't be said with Game of Thrones. It's been compromised. And yes, it, there was a feeling that th- there was a, an understanding that it was time to move on to other things. Not everybody wanted to. And as you say, I th- HBO would have let that run forever. And people would have watched as well. I'm interested in the argument. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think more about how we can possibly return to and revise these expansive television serials, which is, I mean, sorry, these expansive television series, but they're no longer serials. Uh, That's the other thing as well. I'm I'm interested how an audience consents to never miss an episode. When we we were watching The X-Files, you could miss episodes. I mean, there are still episodes, and I recall which ones. Oubliette, Aubrey, Excelsis Day... I've never seen them. Kaddish <laughs> from the fourth season. And I own them on DVD and they've been rerun. I think I've got a couple of those even recorded. <laughs> and they're in the middle of seasons that I've watched the rest of. And I've never seen them. And that was customary when we were growing up in television in the 80s and in the 90s. It didn't matter if you missed four episodes a season. And it was the same with 24 even. Mm. It wasn't all essential. And with the with the X-Files and other shows of that nature... Um, yeah, there were. Uh, you could miss an episode without missing much. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but well, the it, fandom it, was just as fierce. It's completely different because back then you were shooting for syndication, right? That's where the money is. You got yeah. to get a hundred episodes. Got to be in syndication. If you want to be in syndication, people are going to be watching out of sync. People are going to be watching out of sync as to be episodic. Whereas now there's not that at all. Now the whole yeah. the whole conceit is we're going to be telling an overall narrative. It's going to be going somewhere. Stick with us. Because you're going to be able to stream this bad boy in one go. That's the whole. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It's and 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 this, that's and that's what all these platforms want. Your Netflixes, your, um, well now TV in the UK, whoever it might be, they want those because they they call them box sets. You know, which is a throwback yeah. to the DVD box set of the 2000s. You know, they're cool. We've got so many box sets. This is uh, come to our platform, stay on our platform, please pay us monthly, because we have this many box sets, and this is worth your time and energy and effort. So binge worthy. This is the marketing yeah. speak. Binge worthy box sets. Bank holiday. You know, get the email through from Netflix on a Thursday. Bank holiday coming up. Binge worthy box sets for for you to devour. And it's just a completely different pitch on how to consume television completely and utterly different yeah um and that that's what it that, that's what it comes down to and that that's that's why for me with game of thrones yeah it did drop the ball at the end and it ain't binge worthy no more <laughs> i was there yeah. i was there man 
I was there when they rolled it out over the course of a decade and I really, really enjoyed it. I think it ended in a decent way uh, and I'll definitely go back and relive some favourite moments. But fuck me, am I going to watch the whole thing again from beginning to end? Yeah. No way. No way. Maybe a season of The X-Files had only 8 or 12 essential episodes. So there's not more essential episodes a season on these things. They think it's greater because... Maybe every episode is a banger, but they're still only making 8 to 12 episodes that you must see. Just as The X-Files, just as NYPD Blue, just as LA Law only made 10 or 12 essential episodes a season. Yeah, I think what this, yeah. what this structure has done, I think, is that it's allowed comedy to flourish and flower in ways it hasn't in the past. I've been watching Barry, and Barry does something similar to Eastbound and Down, where a comedy doesn't have to be consistently funny like a sitcom anymore it can yeah. the humor can be more character based the characters can be far more intricate more anti-heroes and more anti-villains comedy i think is doing well on this model girls was similar i even liked how to, how to make it in america yeah but uh drama uh well it's doing, it's doing it. well commercially you know people it's all about uh, these serialized dramas, isn't it? But whether yeah. whether whether it's the way to go, um, I prefer to our film self. But that's just me. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. revisit it. I'm sure we'll be coming back to this time and time and time again. But anyway, that's us putting the world to rights on the Game of Thrones. And uh, who won the Game of Thrones? Uh, it, w- it wasn't the viewer. It wasn't the viewer. HBO. The advertisers. We haven't touched upon all of that which we needed to, which we wanted to. Please, audience, come back to us with your criticisms of this last season of Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones in its entirety. I like to get into the nuts and bolts and taking apart a show of such accomplish. There's more to say about Game of Thrones and the the ways in which it succeeded, the ways in which something so seemingly British was so successful. Um, how can they get in touch with us, Luke? Go to onesensationalshot.com. That's where we call home. Uh, there's Twitter, of course, if you search at onesensational. That's our Twitter handle. Uh, Instagram, at onesensational. I forget about the Instagram. Fletch uh, regales us with his um, wonderful pictures of his uh, his acquired memorabilia in the room. A lot of that is actually available for sale, I hasten to add. And you can go to One Sensational Shop on eBay and all the proceeds there whether it be laser discs, posters, whatever it might be that we're flogging, the proceeds do go to help fund the podcast. We try to avoid going down that whole Patreon route, that kind of thing. So uh, if you see anything you like on there, then uh, then of course do, do purchase and it'll be safe for the knowledge that it's helping us out. Um, but like I say, onesensationalshot.com is uh, is the place to be and you can, you can find all the links to the, the different social media channels on there. Of course, if you're listening on iTunes, do leave us a review. It helps other people find us and discover us. Uh, and we're on Spotify as well, and Stitcher, and most of the places that uh, that you uh, you can find podcasts, including now Google Podcasts. So if Google Podcasts is your podcast vendor of choice and you're listening elsewhere at the moment, you can, of course, pivot across to Google Podcasts. Thanks very much, everyone. Uh, this has been One Sensational Shot. We're signing off. You want to suck my dick, is that it? Dick? Cock. Ah, dick. I like it.
bet you do.